Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I are joined by friend and architectural designer, Scott Deicher. During his graduate studies at Michigan, Scott became fascinated by the intersection between graphic representation and parametric design. This led to his graduate thesis using parametric design to explore small-scale residential interventions. During our discussion, Scott uses the recently released 2030 Climate Change Report to introduce us to the concept of leveraging points and their parallels to architectural and social reform. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start oh, did they the, like the play in a bar or something? They did. Um, what, what was the bar called? Tropicalia, like right on 14th. Yeah. yeah. What? They played at Tropicalia? That's pretty cool. It's uh-huh. pretty dope. They were the opening. There was three. There was two openers and then and then the main band. And That's I thought they were the cool. better of the two openers. What does he play? What is it like? It's like, like 70s? It, it's like Red Hot Chili Peppers. I mean, it's What's like his instrument though. He's like the lead man, singer, and guitarist. Like, really? He's good. He like does all the singing. No one else sings. Like he's wow. Really, that's impressive. They sang like twelve songs that were eighty. It was like eighties night. Mm-hmm. So they did like, like last, like last chance of Mary Jane, like Maggie May, like right. all that, like you know, dude, that's pretty. But cool. actually, Peppers around the world stuff, like, and he's good too, man. That's awesome. So I guess we can go ahead and get started. I'm interested in rehearing about what eventually led you to essentially your conversation today, which is going to be about the leverage points and the way you've been thinking about that. So what led me to get to this point? Yes, exactly. Great. So the um, the leverage points is a reading that we read in uh, the class in at Michigan called Sustainable Systems. So it's, um, it's a kind of design-ish, systems-ish sustainability course that... Um, kind of talks about the overall flows of information throughout the world. Um, so it's it's kind of Michigan's answer to sustainability. It's more of a broad systems thinking course. So we read this reading by Danella Meadows, who is this systems thinker, and I thought it was it, it really impacted me and, and a lot of other people at the school because it was it was talking about ways that you can intervene in a system. And she kind of ranks from 1 to 12, the effective effectiveness of different ways that you can intervene in a system. So we had talked uh, a couple weeks ago about my interest in parametric design, and I was thinking about variables and the different ways that um, a parametric design process is structured. So I kind of was led back to this reading, and that kind of coincided with the release of the climate change report which was pretty terrifying and, and struck me. Yeah, and, you, you said, like, horrifying. Yeah. And, and I, I think when we sat down, you said something like, why isn't everybody looking at this? Yeah, I, I mean, and I still kind of think about that. I, I think about that every time something new comes up about the climate because that report, which only came out a few months ago, was supposed to shake up the world, not because it was like doomsday is coming you know, in a hundred years, but it was saying like doomsday is here, but like double doomsday is in 2030 and we're totally fucked unless we totally rethink our way of life. And they, they laid out all of the data. So I was, I was freaking out at that moment thinking about like, oh my God, the only way for architects. And I was hoping that we could kind of 
talk about these leverage points as young designers. Um, maybe the only way that we can impact this change is if we reference some sort of like systemic intervention strategy, which led me back to the leverage points here. Maybe we should talk about like what these these twelve these twelve um, leveraging points are. Maybe we don't get yeah. into all of them, but at least like the spectrum of them. I th- and I think yeah. I'm going to do that by referring to the graphic. Okay. Um, there are twelve leverage points in order of effectiveness, and the first, I think, number twelve, the least effective one, is one of the most striking points about this article, and that's that. Danella Meadows is arguing that the constants, parameters, and numbers in a system are the least effective way to intervene and change what's going on in the system. And that is to say that most systems already have some kind of amount of variables built into them, like subsidies, taxes, and standards, and adjusting the values of those numbers, in her view, is the least effective way to intervene in a system so i'm I'm seeing like subsidies taxes standards mm-hmm. money right like the, like the 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 numbers and figures of our lives right and um the the f- top uh the kind of least effective first few of those are all kind of numeric can be boiled down to more or less values and numeric um constraints when you get into the kind of middle like middle ground of effectiveness it's more about how those variables are related to each other um, in terms of like what are the rules of the system and like how are things kind of tied one to the next. And then when you get to the finally uh, the most effective way of transcending or, or intervening in a system, it's much more about observing the end result that you thought you wanted and kind of moving past it and realizing that like we need to actually change the entire goal of what we're doing so i came up with this graphic i started just by diagramming out the structure of what a grasshopper script looks like so grasshopper is uh it's a graphic you call it graphic programming so it's it's basically the same as writing lines of code except you can do it visually by taking like little blocks of information and values and plugging them into each other. And then you have a kind of wired, like weird looking diagram of, of nodes connected to each other with so wires. It's like a flow chart almost. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it is. It totally is. It's basically a flow chart um, where the user is designing the system. And so I started out kind of diagramming what that, what that looks like. So this, this diagram, um, if you kind of ignore the dashed lines for a minute, shows a typical setup of a grasshopper script for what most people would would think grasshopper should be used for. So the first two green little nodes, uh, one is a is a slider, the one on the top, so that allows the user to kind of slide uh, the little circle up and down the bar and increase or decrease the value of of that variable as it's plugged into the equation that the user has set up it's you're called it's called scripting when you kind of plug these things into one another and then the other the other variable in the very beginning um is the geometry itself so most 
most people will think of grasshopper as like a way to say you take a circle and uh, you kind of plug a bunch of rules into it and you want 500 circles but you want each circle to respond to a moving variable kind of um, in a flexible way so a really good example of a grasshopper like a typical grasshopper script has smaller circles near like one point that increase in radius as you run away from that point mm-hmm. and that's like kind of the classic example of a, of a parametric design or a, or a grasshopper script it's like you create like a focused epicenter yeah and as you move that epicenter around it starts to transform and translate what's around it right and those are like when you look up parametric design it's it's instantly recognizable as these kind of curved surfaces that like very effectively respond to um to a bunch of different variables and and i can probably plug in some some good examples to add at the very end of this mm-hmm. um and the the next kind of chunk of this script is called the transformation so the the transformation is basically setting up the rules for how you make the game happen or how you make the geometry move from one thing to the next so in the example that i just used the transformation is the act of telling those circles to get bigger as they're further away from point a or smaller as you get closer to it um and that's kind of the chunk of the code is like designing this entire rule set of what you want to do and the very end is is the geometry so that's this is the output and most people think when you design a, a grasshopper script that that kind of you already know what the output is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know it's going to be new geometry that's responding to the original geometry based on the rules that you set up. Um, so basically, w- what I'm trying to say is the diagram in the middle, to me, is the diagram of the typical, like, unquestioned grasshopper script mm. that that most people think of when they think of, like, using parametric design tools mm-hmm. grasshopper dynamo um and i think that what i found when i was relating this diagram to the to the meadows reading was you can actually just boil all of those 12 different leverage points into the three chunks of that code and what i realized was like meadows allowed us to describe this set of rules plugging into each other. Um, she also, by by describing that, like, these are the components of a game, like, she's kind of allowing this script to emerge based on um, what, what she's described. She will then allow us to kind of transcend the game because you've broken it down. Mm-hmm. So I went I went back and I looked at this diagram that I made and I thought about how different architecture practices operate within or without of these boundaries. So I I have been thinking about this almost ex- exclusively in terms of uh the role of architects. Mm-hmm. So mm. 
I I can bring in some examples and and talk about the relationship. Yeah, it yeah. can be helpful if you do, if you yeah. dive into that because yeah. it seems like all of us are actually thinking about it pretty differently. Which yeah, is, I, I yeah, which is good. Which is good. Um, but yeah, I I definitely want to I want to talk about architects and what architects can do and and this this diagram was generated as a response to what I see as sort of the default mode of one architectural design method of, of parametricism um, where the designer has yet to question the role of, of geometry. And they're just assuming that like the input, say the input ge- geometry is the site mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe the program and the actual variables, like those are all architectural input pieces that I, I could call geometry in this metaphor, I guess. The assumption is that at the very end, you will have a really well-optimized building um, because that is that are, that is the result of the parts that you've put together based on the initial variables. So you mm-hmm. have like a really good piece of new geometry at the very, what I'm calling like the very base level of design method number one, so changing the variables. So to me, um, Changing the variables, design method one, is what most people think of when they think about architects or, or maybe what you think about when you're a beginning architect looking at like a corporate firm or, or learning about program and just thinking like, oh, I need to do space planning exercises. I need to be mindful of budget. I need to be mindful of restrictions. And then at the very end, if I have like properly managed all of these variables and kind of the transformation part is the set of rules and you don't really question those rules you just you play the game based on the rules so you're only manipulating the sliders at the very beginning of the equation in order to get the best result at the very end Mm -hmm. so to me that's like the that's the firm or like the typical firm whatever um but I'm I wanted to argue that some architects want to change the rules or they like to try and change the rules as a way of generating design. Um and at our very first meeting I brought in a bunch of books and some of those books were pattern books. Um the most the most obvious one is called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander. And what he was doing was um he was making a list of all like what he saw as like all of the possible variables involved in making a house or making a building and in a city and a city. Yeah. Yeah. He goes up, up and down in scale. And, um, and basically what he does is design a rule set for combining those variables with each other. Like the hyper catalog. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that, that to me is designing a rule set based with the end result still being in a, a building, so new geometry in this metaphor, but um, what he's doing is starting in the very middle of this grasshopper script and then building back to the left in order to get to an end result on the right. So he's designed a rule set in the very middle, but in order to do that, he has to make a list of all possible options on the left-hand side that he can use as inputs. So his whole book is like 250 like you know porch and then like 
of mm-hmm. you and beer gardens beer gardens. literally a sleeping in public <laughs> is a chapter like yeah. it's literally places to sleep <laughs> he, he <laughs> like, tries to think of like fucking yeah. everything yeah. in the world so that his pattern his rule set can be effective um which i think is like pretty amazing and compelling and, and a bunch of people you know argue back and forth on whether or not that's that's a good way of doing things but essentially in my mind and in this metaphor he's designed a new set of rules the end goal is still the same but he's doing a completely different design method that is just further down in the chain um and a couple other books have come out more or less like you could kind of see them as pattern books or not but uh like the ltl manual of section i just bought that it's great it's a great book and to me what it essentially is is a it's a pattern book of sectional moves Mm -hmm. so there's like there's like hole and then there's shear and then there's stack and their argument and they say in the text they're like look this is not an exhaustive list of sectional moves that you can make to design a building Mm -hmm. but it's a handful of them and we've like made a taxonomy of them in the very beginning and then at the end like the second half of the book is all how the design moves are smashed together and combined in different buildings there's a there's another great pocket book called um, transformative geometry mm. it's about like four inches by five inches and it basically starts with a cube and it just says um extrude mm. or or um, so subtract the, or the additive or conditional design maybe? exactly yeah 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 yep yep that's that is the same same way and and it's it's just like a set of rules and to me that's that's like this new or that's like this alternative hmm. method of of practice. Um, and if you were if you were to think about urban design in this this metaphor, in the the first example, so the changing the variables example, where you haven't really discussed what the rules are, uh, we talk about planning. So planners like like an urban plan is is literally or like and I people always like fuck up the the distinction between planning and design but some sometimes a plan is like the proscriptive final and static result of the of a city um i think some people call that an urban plan and some would call it an urban design we 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 in in our firm we our our studio group is called large-scale design Mm -hmm. and we we call it that we use large-scale design because we don't want to confuse what's what's the proper word conflate the two like to conflate the word planning Mm. with Mm -hmm. master planning right right so what i or just policy planning what i'm talking about is is master planning yes that's 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 the distinction that i'm looking for yes right right so so master planning would be changing the variables not really questioning anything not designing a rule set but you're saying like we want this end result to look like this master plan and we'll get to it in 30 years but like everything will follow this prescriptive method that we designed on like day X and we'll always refer back to day X. Mm -hmm. But in method two, changing the rules, um, you start to get into zoning. And I think a good example of how zoning, like zoning can serve master planning or zoning can become the planning document itself and form-based code where you actually just set up some rules and say like this zone has a height restriction of X and like this zone has a density of X to me, form-based code is like that starts to become a design by rule set methodology. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Well, the, the interesting distinction between like the first two, and I find I find it really really fascinating is inherently when you're when you're operating in the second rung in the transformative rung, you're still compiling variables in order to prove your rule, and and it's like. You have to make the list of the variables yourself, though. Right. To me, which is the difference. That's what I'm saying. So I've been thinking about... I'm actually thinking about a new episode, Austin. Okay. Where um, <laughs> i actually been thinking about it for a couple weeks now. And it's it's kind of, it's crazy yeah, random. Sure. So it's like... It's really... It's like a media thing. So I was thinking about like laugh tracks on sitcoms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And how... So I had this like thing in my mind. And I was like, somehow... When we were watching The Office or Parks and Rec... I know this is tangential, but we'll get back. Yeah, sure. And, um, and you realize that like our humor and our generation has this different type of like humor where it's dry. And if a sitcom comes out now that has a laugh track, it's like hokey and psycho. Big like, Bang Theory. Yeah. Big Bang Theory is one of the, maybe the anomalies, right? Like they but all do these, have a laugh track, I think. What? Do they, do they I don't know if they do or not. Big, it seems like a show that would. Big, Big Bang Theory does have a laugh track because there's a whole series of YouTube videos called Big Bang Without the Laugh Track. Exactly. Which is horrifying. So <laughs> Because it's like listening to d- depressed people try to cheer each other up with other depressed thoughts. Oh, my yeah. God. I so want to like, watch exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> so, like that, but that's one of the... So, I had this notion in my head that there's a cultural shift in the way we perceive our sitcoms and our home and our lifestyles and, and the laugh track was an interesting way to to maybe expose like a rift or maybe expose like a generational difference between our parents and us on how we watch television like Seinfeld and Friends like have laugh tracks and but they're like still shows that we resonate with mm. it's kind of like that last moment before like the office and stuff where it became weird to have a laugh track yeah so that was like that's my idea and, and then I then I realized okay and like whatever any other project would do here like statues or the neighborhood thing I have this idea, but then you have to go, that's like, maybe that's number two, but then you kind of have to go back to the changing the variables and then like list every single show from 1940 to 2018. And it's like, it's like the pattern language idea. Then you have to list every single one. Like, did it have a laugh track? Like how popular was it? Mm -hmm. You know? And then, then you have to try to find, and I'm trying to view it as like a grasshopper script, you know, then you have to find, okay, like, what influenced what and and what affected what to get to that that to almost like reaffirm your hypothesis Mm -hmm. and it's like so you're saying you start in that you start with like an intuitive idea and then you have to verify it with that changing the variables or creating the variable list thing even to get back right and then to see if it proves your final end goal the final piece in the script so it's like could so it's this idea of like systems thinking that's like how i was applying it in my head yeah sure but it's like could you so you're saying the most and i'm interested to see how you talk about the third column but like you're basically saying you start as far far down as you can and then you backtrack and then you try to reaffirm through all the way right so like what would it be like if you started in the third column like what's an example of that well that's a that's a good segue okay um and i think as a disclaimer like the Meadows is very clear that she she believes that the order of 12 through 1 is the order of effectiveness. And I think w- what I'm doing is more trying to categorize different ways of working. Yeah, and w- yeah. we would all we would all have to like sit here and agree that the the people that are doing, you know, passive house design have it wrong because their end goal is like high performance building. 
And I don't think that's the case. I, I think that like at this point, at least with architects, like we can't sit here and decide that one of these is more effective than the others yeah. because as you go further down the chain, it becomes more and more impossible to like actually yeah. do the thing. I, well, I, it's almost it's almost like we need to. I don't know if I want to say it that way, but I I'm starting to get this intuition that we could plug in at any of these three points, and different conditions would have a more positive or less positive result depending on where you did plug in. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like understanding the scenario and then locating the optimal place to plug in. I think like, that's a great point. Like, is it is it about changing variables? Is it about understanding the rules and proposing changes in the rules? Or is it about seeing the entire structure as being potentially flawed mm-hmm. and and restructuring everything, changing the game, yeah. so right. to speak? I think it's like, it might come in phases too, right? Like people, like with Passive House, people that first started pa- um, like Passive House or sustainable projects like Onion Flats and stuff, you know, like that firm and they, like, they kind of started by understanding how to change the game and they changed the variables over time and they changed the rules and like they might need to collect 10 or 15 years of data in order to then come back and convince everyone else that wasn't like originally on board right and then that that's a good way to like like they went through the whole process and then someone else you know that 10 years later can finally understand what they're saying because yeah. they, they take that data and see that it makes sense to them whereas they didn't buy in 10 years ago on the the big vision you know so you Mm -hmm. can apply them both effectively yeah that that makes total sense yeah well and in terms of what the what the third one would be um so there's this project done by a tiny little firm in in chicago called future firm and um the project is is interesting because it's the end goal is not a is not a building it's not like a, a rule set but actually it is um uh, and you kind of have to start at the beginning for this one, but but they operate in South Chicago. There are a bunch of people that come to them to get uh, building violations lifted. Hmm. So it's it's people that have homes that haven't been well maintained, and I guess somehow some of the like bureaucrats in Chicago run around to houses and say like, "This is you know this isn't up to code. You know we're going to condemn your house if you don't change it." Mm-hmm. So then people like. I think they Google like architects in Chicago and then they hit up this like pretty forward thinking design practice in Chicago and are like, you know, I'm not passing code. What what do I do? And they're sitting there like thinking like, oh shit, like uh, we don't, we don't like, this isn't our typical client. We're not typically working for people that don't have any money or like most architects aren't typically working for people without money or you know, design ambition. Um, so their solution to this this thing in Chicago, this issue was um, what they call the Office of the Public Architect. And what that is, is like a reference to the fact that when you get hit with a crime, you have a right to a public defender if you don't Whoa. have a lawyer. That's cool. Right? But if you get hit with a building violation, like, no one like you have to have money to have someone tell you how you can keep your home i'm loving everything about this right conversation it's, it's pretty killer and um so obviously you know you guys have 
have figured out what I'm what I'm getting at, but they're they're proposing that Chicago implements this office of the public architect and the the solution is that that architects can serve these people there's kind of public money being pulled in to support these small projects that are probably like you know i I bet a bunch of them are small little things like that that could probably be solved with with sweat equity and and Mm -hmm. less money or something Mm -hmm. um and then kind of the tangential benefit that the firm says would be about this project is um allowing young architects to learn kind of like nuts and bolts like problems of of buildings and like and yeah. bureau- bureaucracy in chicago there, there, and stuff. that makes so much sense yeah, that, yeah this this whole thing actually makes much more sense to me that now that you described this because yeah. the end, end result is is not a building it's not a set of rules it's like yeah, we just need to really rethink everything. Well, effect- yeah. Effectively, the crux of this whole argument is: the farther down the line you start, the more people you could potentially affect, and the more larger system you could potentially affect into a positive outcome. Correct. Like the, if they were living in that number one column, it would be maybe they develop a really awesome standard for how to replace kitchens, mm-hmm. and they go house by house, and they hope, you know, they do a bunch of kitchens up to code, and then. Hopefully, people in the neighborhood catch on, and hopefully, they get more and more business, and maybe they do thirty kitchens a year. Yeah. But if they literally institute this entire programmatic thinking, then they could affect ten thousand kitchens mm-hmm. in one year because everyone else adopts their system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't need the the originator of the idea to be present in any way. They just mm. they came up with like a system that could be implemented once you have the the rule book in your hand. Wow. Oh, and I, and I meant to kind of say that um in in the second in the second category and I know because we're interested in graphics on on your platform. I think that a lot of graphic design firms and environmental like um uh what is it called like environmental design like wayfinding and stuff. Um fuck, I forget the UX? exact term. Uh, you, I, well, user you, experience UX, ux yeah but like even in, even just like straight up graphic f- firms that design wayfinding systems and the example i was going to use was like the new york subway um mm-hmm. which is they they like re-released like the rule book for the the graphic standards of the new mm-hmm. york subway like they kind of repackaged it a couple years ago and it's this like gorgeous huge volume of the rules that were set up when the when the subway like rebranding occurred with like the Helvetica and the new map and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think just because you guys are interested in this kind of graphic idea, I think that most often a, a firm that's doing something graphically is probably operating more in the design or rule set category because a graphic or a brand or an identity needs to be this like set of rules that can be instituted in a bunch of different situations rather than like a single like they're not designing one sign in front of a building they're designing like an an identity and a brand so that's like a rule set but that was just an example that i i wanted to squeeze in there as we were Mm -hmm. yeah i I had the opportunity to go to japan earlier this summer yeah i heard about that and sweet is kind of crazy. <laughs> a lot of crazy things that happened. We'll have to talk about that later. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I found um, uh, really fascinating is that when I got on the Japanese metro system, um, 
and and I, we had been there for I don't know like 24 hours at that point, and you get out of an airplane, and suddenly everything's in Japan, um, Japanese, and 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 suddenly everything's in Japan. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, you're off the airplane. You arrive in Japan, and suddenly everything's in Japan. <laughs> but but everything is in Japanese, and and you're suddenly really quickly falling back on the hope that people have created useful diagrams and, <laughs> and useful iconography <laughs> yeah. to get you around That's funny. because you can't read anything. Yeah. And it was a struggle to get out of the airport. And then it was a little bit of a struggle to get on the right train. And then we arrived on the right street. It was a little bit of a struggle to find where we were um, living. But when we walked into the Metro system, it just clicked because everything was that familiar linear um, uh, movement patterns with dots and everything. Mm-hmm. There was no names. It was all just numbers. Yeah. It was, and it was in it was American alphabet. The the um, the the Japanese subway systems rely on the numbers. I think it was like one through fifty and and A through A through Z, and it was just a universal method of of doing it. But it, it it's speaking to that idea that you design for variables outside of just a local condition yeah like that methodology of how that graphic system works could work in any country right and and you're talking about new york rebranding theirs theirs is probably similar in some capacity Mm -hmm. um so at at work we have um uh, our firm and or our our office in dc and uh, our office in new york um have the largest practice area uh, swath in that um, both locations have uh, seven to ten practice areas Mm -hmm. and the other firms um, the other locations have uh, one to three and so oftentimes the other firms come to our to dc and to to new york with problem solving solutions because our solutions across our practice areas are more universal Mm. And they end up being more applicable because we need to live in this flexible realm longer um, because the people that we're utilizing are shifting. Like I might be in multifamily one day, but I might be helping senior living another day. Mm -hmm. And so if I can't walk over to that team and speak a similar language, then it's going to slow down a process. Right. Where say like our Charlotte office, all they're doing is commercial. So they just need to speak one language. And so... The kind of the more that you can start the question in in the center in this in this kind of rule based flexible realm, mm-hmm. potentially you're you're allowing yourself a greater degree of flexibility and understanding, seeing it as a as game changing moves and seeing it as kind of variables. Yeah. So, so I think this is very applicable to um, to policy or to like how you run a firm mm-hmm. or. Um, and we talk about wages and, um, they, they, I think this transcends a lot of aspects of how we kind of function. Do you think there's like, do you think, so there's another wrench in this response to that. Do you think there's a little bit of idealism involved in, in pushing towards column three? Like, um, you know, realism versus idealism, say this future firm, for example, this idea, right? That's an incredible idea. But more often than not, incredible ideas get shot down because of money, logic, old t- things are the things are always been the way they have been. Right. So, like, as a designer of a system or a systems thinker, do you always shoot for the most idealistic 
you know, that third column? Or do you have to sometimes, based on your audience, like maybe sneak around some of these things and start in that second column or start at one mm -hmm. knowing, start at the variables knowing you, you would rather be in three. Does you know, yeah. how do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think Austin kind of hit it, hit the nail on the head earlier in the conversation saying that like different design situations will require a different starting point on, on the scale. And I, I think especially in my, in my work in, in small scale residential practice, if someone comes up and says, I need a two-story addition because I need a new bedroom. Like you can question their way of living. You can be like, well, why don't you sleep on the couch? Or you can just like <laughs> design a fucking two-story addition because that's the only way that something will get done. And then there's, you know, there's kind of any level in between that, but it definitely is the sweet spot because that office of the public architect does not exist. Like it yeah. was, it was an idea that we're sitting here saying it's a great idea, but will it will it occur in the next ten years? No, like unless someone like really digs in on it, those idealism, those idealistic things are by nature incredibly difficult to implement. So I think pointing them out is positive, and mm -hmm. maybe that's like the first step is just saying like just to let you know, like the goal is still a part of the system. Like we can't, maybe we can't change the goal, but we should recognize what the goal is and maybe like work backwards to get to the, to the variables or like use it as just kind of a reference point. But no, I, I don't think that we should always be yeah. reaching for column three. A, a, a scary thing that I'm, I'm thinking about right now is are these three zones accessible based off of resources and and um, um, essentially like the, to put it bluntly like does the poor only have access to column one and as you have more money or more resources or more connections does that then give you a greater accessibility to all three columns because I think about it relative to say firm size mm -hmm. a smaller firm size probably doesn't have the resources or the international clout to change the game every mm -hmm. time they do a project yeah they're probably working at a function of I'm putting a room here or maybe I saved you a thousand dollars my firm that is a um, uh, hundred people in my office and and about we're growing towards 1500 people I think we're only in zone two where we are thinking about the rules and proposing maybe potentially innovative ideas, mm -hmm. but we also probably don't have the clout to change the game every time. We can kind of work within the variables, but by no means are we, say, in zone three, which I think is where Starkitects live, where the clout and the branding is all about changing the game every time and being tapped into um, either either having the clout of, of a architect or being such a large firm, you can afford to essentially lose sometimes yeah, every time you attempt changing the game. I think that's one way to look at it for sure. But the other way is to say the larger you get, the more you have, the more variables you have, and then 
the more you have to worry about those variables, like people, staff, money, more, more, more problem. Yeah. So like you could think of, look at it completely the opposite way. I mean, me and Scott both work at small firms. We have to defend this side. So it's like, you could argue that small firms have the flexibility and the, the like cohesiveness potentially to like think about new geometries more than the variables, you yeah. know, like so you could see it yeah. both ways. I agree with you, but I think you can see both ways. Usually you're talking about big ship versus small ship, like, like, concept so so like to use a metaphor it's a lot easier to turn a sunny which is a name of like a tiny little sailboat like it's a lot easier to turn a sunny on a dime than say a cruise ship yeah i mean you can kill people with poison or like a bazooka you know (laughs) whatever whatever way but you're you're speaking from the opposite side of changing the game doesn't need you're 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 essentially throwing out the the devil's advocate point of changing the game doesn't need to necessarily be a a variable of resources it could just be a a an opportunity of flexibility yeah. which smaller firms do have or one really good idea you know like this future you know future firm thing right i think that very few architects can change the game i don't even think that starchitects do it like i i think the big starchitects maybe are creating like interesting spaces that change aesthetic games or like reflect very like they do very compelling things that like reflect the spirit of the age or something but i don't i don't even see beyond like the really niche projects like this public architect thing and like i talked about the keller easterling like design by subtraction kind of method to me the that column of changing the game exists almost beyond the realm of what any practicing architect would ever really think of doing so like even at a small firm like asking a client to like rethink something i know i used that example earlier like i don't even know if that's enough to to count as changing the game because because to me i feel like the game is so kind of set for for architects and for like the this industry where i see the the game changers in just different fields like like policymakers and and lawmakers and that kind of stuff and exactly yeah um so anyway i'll i'll break down the relationship between this diagram and the the way that i've been thinking about parametric design lately um so if you look up grasshopper tutorials online you will find like the example I described earlier, the classic um, increasing and decreasing radius of circles in relationship to a single point. And the assumption there is that you have input geometry, input variables, a set of uh, components that act as the sort of rule set of transformation. And you know that in the very end, you will get new geometry. And in both of those scenarios, the geometry is native to the rhino environment and you've never really questioned like why that is you're you're doing it because you're in rhino and and that's you know or you're in grasshopper and that's that's kind of what you have um and i think that this workflow is what led to the sort of parametric aesthetic of the late 90s and early 2000s because people were given this workflow and told like this workflow is the future this is parametric design and 
thus the the game was kind of set up and no one really questioned like how it was done they were like okay well you need geometry and variables and then you need a set of rules then then you'll get new geometry and you'll be able to manipulate all these variables and like maybe even write new rules to get like really cool new responsive geometry Mm -hmm. what i really like about grasshopper is not that but it's actually the way that it can manipulate different data sets and and bring them in so rhino and grasshopper has like they both have an incredible environment of software developers um not not hired by the the software company but like random people that just build plugins and stuff and they are always coming out with new software that can plug rhino and grasshopper into whatever program you can think of so you know revit microsoft excel like all of these different data data management softwares so what i think about is um how can i use the like amazing abilities of of rhino and its and its way of drawing geometry to scale and and managing a bunch of different like lines and and solids and stuff and the kind of graphic output of a program like illustrator and link them together and mm. and get something like really compelling because both of those tools do completely different things very very well and there's an opportunity there because someone designed a, a plugin that can get Rhino into Illustrator. There's a there's an opportunity to design a system where actually the input is is Rhino geometry, but the output is like an Illustrator animation. And that's something that parametric design allows and that Grasshopper allows, but isn't really in the playbook because this initial diagram is what people view as parametric design so is, is in a way are you talking about parametric post-processing maybe parametric post-processing but but i think on a more like allowing us to go more broad again is like the opportunity that you don't necessarily have to have rhino geometry as the output or like you know a bunch of geometric transformations as the actual set of rules you can actually you, you can have a sort of rethinking of the set of rules based on this graphic scripting process where you're plugging one component into the next because the whole parametric design process is it's plugging things into one another based on a set of relationships and it's not just you know making sure that your curvy surface can receive a cool pattern with yeah. a bunch of like parts plugged into it mm-hmm. which it's really good at but it, it can do a bunch of different things that's exactly what i was going to say is like and i think what you're trying what you're proving that's really compelling is that i'm thinking about this as like a media tool right so if you just draw like hand draw or model in sketchup or revit or whatever in rhino like some sort of design that you arrived at it's it could be very good but what you created is not necessarily proven or backed up and by by data or variables or inputs that you can point to and say these are the decisions I made to get here. Mm-hmm. And like with this systems system or rule-based thinking, you're inherently adding legitimacy to the end product because of the process that you're plugging in known data and you can point to the decision the decision making process. Yeah. And that's like the whole beauty of parametric design and grasshopper in general is like 
you, if someone questions the new geometry, you say, "Well, here's how I got there," and and, and just it, trace it. And every t- at every time at every fork in the road, here's the decision that was made, mm-hmm. and you're basically like mathematically, you're ba- you're basically making a mathematical proof, or like a totally. of like of like what your design is in order to further reinforce its concept. Exactly. Right. And and I I think that when you think about it that way, it makes it makes grasshopper sound even easier than rhino because if you're designing and and that's that's something that i've thought about before like there's this sort of um fear of using the grasshopper interface because people think it looks weird because it's got a bunch of wires but really it is that map it's it's actually someone spelling out for you Mm -hmm. in big words or icons like how you were how you arrived at something and i think that the the kind of resistance to that interface comes from the fact that in order to understand the process you have to read the scripts like you would read an essay like you have to sit there and start at node one and say let me consider that there was a rectangle and then let me think about the fact that it was shifted. <laughs> let me consider that there was a rectangle. Yeah, I know. You, you I can, like that. that could be like the but, little intro. But. but yeah, I mean, it's like, so I was I was at Maryland on, on Monday and um, a student was designing this facade off of uh, a Connecticut Ave and it was this organic facade and they mm-hmm. kept saying nature and, or, and f- right. organic and flows and, and they wanted to make it different than everything else around it. But the, the facade itself, you could tell they just kind of randomly put shapes there, mm-hmm. right? And I asked them, like, what, did you have a rule or a system? Like, did you start with a grid and then you, you went 30 degrees left and you created this circular shape? And they're like, no, I just kind of looked at a tree and I traced <laughs> it. And I, like, thought I put it in a order that made sense. And, like, and I was like, well, you know, one of the core tenets of design is that you have to, you have to have a, you can't just crumple the piece of paper up like, and then say, this is the building, you know, like these architects are said or lighted on fire and right, right. Right. But it's like, but what they arrived at could effectively have been the exact same, as, or very, very close to say something that like was, was designed with parametric design that actually got to that point, mm-hmm. even if they were just a little bit different, but because that was arrived, the one that would be arrived at through using a grasshopper script or parametric design it it followed a system of rules. It inherently makes it better. It's like the the Corbusier, like the regulating line is the guarantee against willfulness. Like, it's right? A good quote. Yeah. But it's but it's it's legitimizing like what you've done. And that, and that's like, that's what the goal is as a designer to convince people that the ideas that you've arrived at or your team or whoever you've arrived at is worth implementing. Yeah, and I think that's what design students don't get the first couple of years is how important their process is yeah. right because there's such there's such like a hesitancy to include those messy traced mm-hmm. drawings that really have the dna of the idea in them because they think that they are are things to be thrown away relative to a final product and i th- i think that yes. that's a function of the the culture that a lot of us grow up in when you're young where people talk about creativity and like I'm not creative because I can't like think of an idea in that moment when the whole point of design school is to teach you that like 
creativity is a myth. It's, it's actually, it is all about process and Mm -hmm. like, it's about how you tackle the problem and how you synthesize one thing from the next. And like the creative person that decided to like build a giant circle building like that. I mean, that might be someone like, I don't know. You're talking about, um, Isaac Newton's epitaph. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I mean, sure. Sure. Those guys, but like <laughs> you might just get lucky with dumb luck every now and yeah, then. Yeah. 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 The, the point is like, it's, it's not about like that one big move and the ones that do like kind of get rid- ridiculed by the rest of the design profession and say like, Oh, there's no like real process behind that. But mm-hmm. there's some, you know, there's some legitimacy, legitimacy to that. Like we are learning about a process. Now the, the, the thing that I often think about is, where where is there what's 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 the word it's um where is the line between spontaneity and ai like essentially in in living in in optimizing the way that we think about process flows and things like grasshopper and parametric design we're tracking towards essentially artificial intelligence optimi- optimization um, and living in that realm. And I still feel like there's a, there's a beauty in things like a magician mm-hmm. doing a trick and you have no idea how, how it works, or you're walking through a forest and like something falls around you, like completely unbeknownst to like all the variables that went into that branch falling around you. Mm-hmm. It just happened. And there's these two extremes of the, the experience of, serendipitous moments in the experience of spontaneity Mm. and and unresolved creativity um as one side of the spectrum and then there is the um hyper analyzed process flows Mm -hmm. and and so while there's while we can look at this and see the the benefits of it I think that there's also we also have to be kind of stewards of the charge to say we can't just head too far into one extreme, mm. and and that we need to kind of retain or at least acknowledge the fact that this lives relative to spontaneity at the same time. I think, um, and it's it's taken me too long into this episode to mention my friend Lara Devine, who her her thesis. Um, she was under under Perry at Michigan, and her mm. her whole thesis. Perry Gilbert, the man. Yeah, um, her whole thesis was the design of a game for design, and it, and if she listens to this, I'm probably gonna fuck up like how it actually <laughs> how it actually worked. But um, the the see the thesis essentially was like designing a deck of cards. Um, and she designed this like massive deck of like 40 cards or something. And each of them that she designed a rule set um, on how these cards could be played. And she was basing it off of, off of reading tarot and saying like, um, and I, I forget the exact categories, but there was an element of her thesis that was, that was spontaneous. It was like, you're actually drawing a bunch of cards at random um, that will help to kind of address whatever mm. design situation has has been like put out in front of you, mm-hmm. and the way that you 
interpret the cards this like how you kind of interpret tarot in, in different ways i don't know exactly how that works but like yeah. the way that you interpret the combination of these cards that have basically been randomly applied to your situation is the impetus for the beginning of your design process because i think that she was trying to address that that spontaneous aspect that might be removed when you can look at a grasshopper script and follow the end result all the way back up the chain to the very beginning move and be like okay well well the magic is kind of gone yeah yeah it's like biological instinct though like when you like look at a painting you look at two paintings you know in the first two seconds which one you like more which one is better yeah and you don't know why it's kind of it's like this deeper ingrained innate concept and you don't want to know but then you can go you can spend six hours making diagrams of the two paintings and and you could say well this one's proportion is better and then the Mm -hmm. color spectrum here is xyz more elaborate you know but it's like there's something to be said about seeing something and and knowing right away right and that's that's kind of that element yeah yeah can i ask one last meta question before we leave yeah of course and we can feel free to cut this out if this gets nowhere could you if you were going to create this diagram with grasshopper like could it have been done meaning like not like actually taking a screenshot of it but like could you have used grasshopper to generate this diagram as a product like the thinking to get to this final idea like it's, it's a kind of a thought experiment you you get what i'm saying What's interesting is you just asked him if he could use Grasshopper to create Grasshopper because the diagram (laughs) essentially is that that would be the source code for Grasshopper would give you Grasshopper. I've been thinking about this the whole time though. Like you chose to like go, this is an illustrator, right? You you chose to make that line weight Mm -hmm. and you chose to make this a certain line weight and that a certain font. But like, do you think if you went the process of optimizing this diagram, like you would have, it would have came out differently. And if it came out differently, it probably would have been fine. But like, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just I, thinking like if like say this is your this is the, the your this is what you were imagining as like a building. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering like, did you if you would have seen that if you would have seen this exact image in your head, but you went through the process of creating the diagram, did it, if it would have came out differently and hence been more legitimate? Say this image popped in your head. Yeah, and you try to create it solely through Grasshopper and not through Illustrator. Yeah, do you think that would have made for a better result? No, I don't. I I think that. I think that Grasshopper's user interface leaves much to be desired. Well, think about it hypothetically. Can uh, Can I jump in here as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I I would imagine that there is a level of human intuition that also mm. went into this diagram. That's yeah, kind of what I'm getting. That's what I'm getting that, at, basically. Yeah, yeah. That that probably would be beyond the capability of what grasshopper could achieve in that there is there's a there's a strange set of um layered um like there's graphical cues there's an intuition into what scott wanted to achieve with the diagram there's an intuition into the clarity of how it could bring to the conversation there's the intuition of knowing us for several years and seeing the way we've produced other podcasts and and some of the other diagrams that we've created there's like a summation of intuitions that went into um the way it's structured and then there's also the informed curves and 
and and geometries that are also reflective of like the the grasshopper language itself. And so I think you could I think you could end up with something with a similar flow, but I think you would I think the optimal diagram actually lives beyond a system process. I think it lives within kind of the hearts and minds of the goal. That's what I'm I guess that, that's kind of what yeah. I'm getting at. But it's like if someone locked you in a room and said recreate this diagram via parametric design, how long do you think it would take you? Am I allowed to use the plugin that links Grasshopper to Illustrator? Mm -hmm. Half hour. It's interesting that I mean like maybe it'd be a fun experiment to try. Yeah, I mean it it's worth noting that yesterday like I did this diagram today, this, e mm -hmm. this evening, mm -hmm. right? And I actually think that's the best time to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I think it's wonderful. Needed to just get it out. I'm, play I'm just play you go yeah. I'm playing devil's after you. you get what I'm saying. Yesterday, I had some a little bit of time after work, and I was and I was trying to figure out what you know what to do. And this happens to me. I get distracted by workflow goals and mm -hmm. stuff. And yesterday, I subconsciously decided that I needed to find a way to create illustrator animations using grasshopper because I I believe in the strengths of of each software and I think that there's something incredibly powerful about linking an architectural design software to a graphic design software because if you're if you're graphic if you're drawing something in illustrator you just don't draw to scale. You can if you really fucking have to, but you never would. Mm. But in architecture, like in architecture, you you very rarely want to draw with like no concept of scale, right? So I think that there's something incredible about linking these two programs together, because inherently, I of course I see the the strengths of one as as opposed to the other. Well, Scott, I I think this is great. I th I think that this diagram kind of it's really funny in that at the beginning of this conversation, I, I we were talking about um, uh, climate change and how it's too much to handle, and then we get these twelve variables, and and I'm still of the opinion like twelve is too much to handle for like like myself and and probably everybody else who walks around who just doesn't care to hold 12 things in their mind. Mm -hmm. And I think what this diagram starting to do is break this 12 leverage points and probably a lot of the ways that systems work down into kind of three variables that you're, you're kind of using parametric design to, to drive that idea. So I, I think this is really compelling and I am, I'm absolutely fascinated by this idea of, of uh, architectural public defender, I like. I literally want to like. Yeah. I literally want to like go to work tomorrow and tell like, like as many. I basically just want to go up to like a principal and just impress him, by by like this concept. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's the big <laughs> takeaway. Like, that's big. That's cool. like like. Yeah, you should look read about the project. It's they they do a lot of really cool stuff. All right. Well, this has been this has been awesome. I I'm feel like. It took me a while to get to something, but there is definitely something to be said about just being forced to spit out the diagram and then mm -hmm. and then rethink once you're looking at it. I, I don't do a lot of these. I don't do a lot of kind of 
diagram your thinking things, but but I do them sometimes, and when I do, I find them incredibly effective, and I think this one speaks to that. I I think that this was a really good exercise, and I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, man. Thank you, Scott. All right. Hey, everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.